Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in May. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Bill Leip is Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at Washington State University. He spent much of his more than 50-year career in Utah archaeology, beginning with the archaeological salvage of Glen Canyon before the dam construction, and on into Cedar Mesa, where he became a leading scholar in the early basketmaker agricultural societies of southeastern Utah. Dr. Light began his work at a time when there was little federal legislation protecting archaeology or guiding preservation efforts, and he became a leader in the development of what we now know of as cultural resource management archaeology. Because of this involvement in cultural resource management, his work at Cedar Mesa, he remains one of archaeology's main voices in the Bears Ears controversy. And uh, he joins us uh, for the program today. Uh, Dr. Leip, welcome to the program. Uh, do we have you? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now, yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you were a little faint there, but I, you're, you're, uh, you're, you're doing well now. Uh, well, we, we appreciate you taking some time to, to be with us. Thank you. Uh, can you hear me, Dr. Leip? Yes, I can. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, uh, apologize for the technical difficulties there, but we're we're set to go now. Sounds like. Uh, well, I appreciate you uh, being on with us. We uh, we had you hosted you on the USU campus in November as part of the Anthropology uh, Speakers uh, series, and uh, so we're uh, grateful to uh, speak to you to you now. Um, and and you've been uh, actively involved. In, in the whole saga with, the, with Barry's ears. Maybe we could start with the Antiquities Act. This is where it all hinges. This is, uh, of course, being litigated now. Um, and and uh, there's some misunderstandings, I believe, that, uh, that you'd like to maybe clear up about the Antiquities Act. You know, my, uh, my history with the Bears ears goes way back to when I was on the, uh, worked on the Glen Canyon project uh, prior to the formation of Lake Powell. I was a crew chief there for the University of Utah group um, from 1958 to 1961. And in the summer, I spent the summer of 1961 in Moki Canyon, which is right on the edge of the uh, Obama-defined Bears Ears National Monument. So my history with the the area goes way back. And then, of course, I worked on the Cedar Mesa project, uh, was a co-director of the Cedar Mesa project for a number of years in the late 60s and and, uh, and up to the mid to late 70s. And that, of course, is right in the center of the, uh, the Bears Ears um, monument as defined by, uh, by President Obama. So uh, it's an area that I know reasonably well, um, and it's, a, it's been an area that's been uh, really important to my personal development and to my career. So uh, so I care about it and uh, know a few things about it, which I'll be glad to uh, expound on here mm-hmm. if you have yeah. time. Yeah, I would, would, would love to. By the way, I was uh, watching a presentation that you gave, and you showed some video, which I uh, believe included uh, as a group of archaeologists, uh, you know, stripped to your waist, um, walking around in Glen Canyon, I include that was the young uh, young Bill Leip. You're the one holding the map. I yes, right. Yeah, yeah. I was. Uh, I was. Uh, that was my first uh, real job in archaeology, real paying job in archaeology. I just turned 23, and <laughs> got dropped off in the uh, in the Glen Canyon with a, a crew of uh, six other relative novices, and uh, <clears throat> figured out how to, to figure out how to make our way uh, and get some archaeology done. 
So it was a it was a learning experience and uh, also very uh, important experience in my development as, as an archaeologist. And I think we did a, a reasonably good job, but considering uh, how how uh, relatively green we were, um, mm. but it was a well run project by the University of Utah. So before we get into Berzers, I'd like to like to talk a little bit about Glen Canyon. I think people. I'm are, sorry. Uh, what's that? What was the question? Oh, I, I said before we get into Berzers, I'd I'd like to talk a little bit about Glen Canyon. Uh, people are curious. I mean, you know, a whole generation, a couple of generations now, uh, never been in Glen Canyon. It's submerged now. What was what was you your know, ex- um, what was your experience? You know what? I would actually like to start by talking about the Antiquities Act, if that's okay with okay, you. Okay, sure. You know, the national monuments are established by presidents under the 1906 Antiquities Act, which is a, an interesting piece of legislation. Um, it really was uh, was uh, passed by Congress in 1906, more than 110 years ago because of a wave of uh, vandalism and looting that was really rampant in the, particularly in the Western U.S. Uh, on the public lands. Uh, so, um, but it was also established, it had two parts. One was a, uh, a part of the law that uh, uh, said that you had to have a permit from the Department of Interior to excavate uh, any archaeological site on the public lands. Uh, and set up a, a system of fines for violations of that provision. Um, but the other, uh, that was that part of the law was replaced in 1979 by what's called the Archaeological Resource Protection Act, uh, which has been much more effective than the Antiquities Act ever was. But the Antiquities Act had another <coughs> provision. The National Monuments provision was very different. Uh, that allowed the president to declare the languages as, uh, to declare by public proclamation historic landmarks, historic and prehistoric structures, and other objects of historic or scientific interest that are situated upon the lands owned or controlled by the government of the United States to be national monuments. So that's a, a extremely vague and extremely broad charge, and it's been used by presidents ever since 1906 to establish national monuments, including... Um, the Grand Staircase Escalante in Utah by President Clinton in 1996 and the Bears Ears Monument uh, by President Obama in, two, in 2016. And then uh, President Trump also relied on the Antiquities Act to diminish the size of the Bears Ears Monument to two smaller parcels in 2017 by proclamation. So it's a very broad uh, law. It's been uh, over 150 national monuments have been established. They range from uh, uh, single historic structures to really quite large areas, of which the Bears Ears is a good example, 1.3 million acres. Uh, but that goes back very, very early. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, under whose administration the act was passed in 1908, established uh, Grand Canyon as a national monument, 800,000 acres set aside. So the the, uh, the setting aside of fairly large areas goes way back to the early years of the Antiquities Act and was at that time uh, Roosevelt's uh, Grand Canyon monument <coughs> was uh, upheld by the Supreme Court. Uh, so it's, a, it's an interesting law. And one of the uh, key figures in that was a 
congressman from uh, Iowa, from Oskaloosa, Iowa, named John Lacey, who was a pioneer, uh, Theodore Roosevelt-style conservationist. He's perhaps best known for the uh, Lacey Act, which is still a bedrock of, uh, of conservation law r- regulating the uh, traffic in uh, plants and animals across state lines and uh, uh, setting up potential for regulating uh, the taking of plants and animals for commercial uses. So that's, that's very important. I think <clears throat> the monuments provision of the Antiquities Act was probably uh, John Lacey's Maybe you know, and the the uh, the uh, penalty provision, the permit and penalty provision, was uh, probably uh, the other author of the act, uh, Edgar Hewitt, who was a pioneer uh, southwestern archaeologist. So I just like to get that uh, out on the uh, as part of the discussion because the act is often uh, thought to apply only to archaeology. As far as but as far as national monuments are concerned, uh, it's much much broader. In fact, uh, uh, four of the five. Uh, uh, Major Utah national parks uh, started out as national monuments. Bryce, uh, uh, Zion, uh, Arches, Capitol Reef. So, uh, and those were designated primarily for their uh, spectacular topography and geology, more so than the archaeology. So, just want to get that on the table. And <laughs> and most of these national monuments uh, have become very popular national parks eventually. Right. This well, is this has had public support. In, certainly in Utah, if you look at yeah. the uh, Utah license plate that shows uh, uh, arches, uh, shows an arch from Arches National Park. Yeah, it's that, really been a, yeah. a uh, central part of the tourist business in uh, in Utah. But most of the recent national monuments, uh, the national monuments uh, uh, initially, many of them were um, given were assigned to the Park Service to manage, and many of them did become. National Parks, which requires a, an act of Congress to upgrade a monument to a park. But uh, uh, Natural Bridges National Monument, which is right in the middle of uh, Bears Ears, is an early national monument that's still managed by the Park Service. But most of the more recent ones, the last 25 years or so, have, have stayed with the agencies such as the uh, Bureau of Land Management and Forest Service and so forth that uh, continue to manage them uh, for uh, for for multiple use, but the monument designation gives them the authority to focus on particular um, resources uh, in the in the monument area. And in the case of the Bears Ears, of course, it's uh, the archaeological sites and the the cultural heritage areas, the areas that are important to the uh, the, the five tribes uh, that form the Bears Ears Coalition for their. Uh, uh, the religious and, and cultural uh, purposes. Uh, I want to talk, have you talk about some uh, misconceptions. Uh, one is people worry that designation of a national monument is, is taking of uh, private land. You know, from the very beginning, uh, as the, uh, as the law itself says, that the matter situated upon the lands owned or controlled by the government of the United States. So, National monuments have always applied just to federal lands. There's no uh, provision for for taking or taking over private land. Private land can be uh, can be sold to the government or will to government or whatever and incorporated in a monument. But that requires a, a willing uh, seller or or, uh, or or donor. 
So uh, it, it, they really just apply to the federal lands. Um, what about multiple use? Uh, national monuments, does that preserve multiple use? Well, uh, you know, I was on the uh, advisory committee for the Canyons of the Ancients National Monument uh, that uh, over in southwest Colorado, which is in many ways very uh, uh, related to the archaeology, very related to what we see in southeast Utah. And that had a strong, uh, uh, you know, existing uh, mineral leases were honored. There's still a major development there for oil, gas, and carbon dioxide, particularly carbon dioxide production. Grazing has continued, but the uh, the focus of that monument is on archaeological protection and interpretation. So uh, what that monument has been able to do is to balance the other uses with a greater attention to preserving and interpreting the archaeological resources. I think the same would be true of the Bears Ears. That is, uh, no new uh, mineral, um, no new oil and gas or mining uh, leases would be granted. Uh, existing uh, leases and, and mineral rights would be honored, but no new ones uh, uh, allowed. Uh, in the monument, um, but the grazing would continue. Grazing permits would continue to be issued and managed uh, uh, again with uh, care to be sure that they uh, are uh, not interfering with the protection of the archaeological sites. But that's already the case with the, mm. the management by BLM and Forest Service on those public lands. Right, right. I wonder, um, can oil and gas development, extraction, can that coexist with archaeological preservation? I'm sorry, can you repeat that question? Yes, uh, I'm wondering about the uh, the oil and gas uh, leases, the uh, extraction. Can that coexist with archaeological preservation? Well, you know, uh, that's been... <laughs> That's what cultural resource management is about. Uh, the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966, uh, with its regulations, have been interpreted to uh, uh, require surveys to be to be done, surveys for historic and cultural and archaeological sites and properties, surveys to be done, and the when an undertaking, a federal agency undertaking, uh, goes forward, and an undertaking might be allowing a, uh, an oil and gas uh, uh, lease and then uh, allowing roads and other facilities to be built as that lease is exploited. So that would involve archaeological surveys, historic surveys, and uh, there would be an attempt to design the, uh, the uh, oil and gas extraction to have a, uh, the minimal effect on the preservation of the archaeological sites. It's often possible to locate the access roads and the other facilities so they, they don't directly impact sites. If that can't be, if that if, if the location can't be uh, adap- adapted uh, to preserving sites, in some cases there may be uh, excavations or further study undertaking, undertaken, but typically uh, it's possible to, to fit those uh, developments in uh, around the locations of the uh, archaeological historic sites. What's happened in the uh, the canyons of the ancients is that it's been possible to uh, require the 
oil and gas industry to provide a longer timeline for development so that the Bureau of Land Management, in this case, can design better surveys and more comprehensive surveys and help the oil and gas industry to locate their their developments in places that have the minimal impact, both directly on the sites. And also there's a lot of concern in that monument for the the visual impact of, uh, of economic development. But it, it goes on uh, in a substantial way. Uh, if you've been over to that area, uh, you'll see plenty of evidence of uh, fairly large-scale uh, development of ex- existing oil, casts and CO2 leases. We're talking with uh, Bill Leip, who is a professor emeritus of anthropology at Washington State University. Glad to have him with us for the program today. We'll take a break now and to come back with uh, Dr. Leip following this. Katie Swain here, the director of membership at Utah Public Radio. You've heard from me a lot lately, and that's because this fall we've been working to raise $50,000 in membership donations. These donations aren't just about maintaining the station, though that is part of it, but they also allow UPR to grow and expand our programming and operations. During our membership drive in September, we came up a little short of our goal, but thanks to your continued support, we're getting closer and closer to reaching it. You've helped us raise over 91% of that overall goal, and right now we have just over $4,000 left to get there. Thanks to everyone who has risen to the occasion, you truly make UPR a reality. But if you didn't get a chance to donate during the membership drive, then this message is for you too. Your support is needed. Join the amazing community of UPR listeners who make it all possible by donating now at upr.org. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in May. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're pleased to have with us Bill Leip. He's Professor of Emeritus of Anthropology at Washington State University. He spent much of his more than 50-year career in Utah archaeology, beginning with the archaeological salvage of Glen Canyon before the dam construction on into Cedar Mesa, where he became a leading scholar in the early basketmaker agricultural societies of southeastern Utah. He began his work at a time when there was little federal legislation protecting archaeology or guiding preservation efforts, and he became a leader in the development of what we now know as cultural resource management archaeology. And we're talking this part of the program about Bears Ears a National Monument. Uh, so, Dr. Leip, I wonder, uh, the, the, the Intertribal Coalition was instrumental in uh, getting the proclamation from President Obama, and uh, one of their big concerns is access to, to ancestral sites. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, I think the, uh, the leadership uh, uh, in developing the monument idea was with the Tribal Coalition. Uh, initially, the, uh, an organization called Diné Bikea, which is based in Southeast Utah, based in San Juan County, in uh, 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 a Navajo organization, they uh, started the push for it, and then they were joined uh, by uh, a coalition of other tribes, including the Ute and Ute Mountain Ute and Uinta Ute, and then the, uh, the Hopi and Zuni Pueblo tribes. So uh, this is a really uh, important uh, development in um, the expression of uh, tribal concern for cultural heritage, for access to sacred places, uh, access to uh, 
places of traditional gathering, uh, medicinal plants, uh, ritual plants uh, uh, for hunting, and so forth. It's really a part of uh, maintaining their living culture. You know, this is an area that has uh, very important in the history of all five of these tribes and others as well. Uh, so the access to these places uh, really is a key part of maintaining that culture as a uh, maintaining that heritage as a living part of the uh, of the culture today. So it's been a really a, an important uh, development in uh, the uh, expression of uh, Native American concerns for this type of uh, preservation and the uh, establishment of use of the uh, law to establish a national monument. I wonder if you could uh, just tell us generally what um, there's some spectacular archaeological sites, uh, Cedar Mesa and others, uh, that the, the Bears Ears, original Bears Ears sought to protect. I wonder if you could tell us about about some of those sites. Well, it's a remarkable place in many respects, uh, uh, and I'll speak uh, to it from the archaeological standpoint. I've already mentioned the, uh, the cultural heritage, uh, living cultural heritage aspect that the tribes emphasize. Uh, but the archaeological sites are, are part of that, but they also have a, a research value and a, a public value and giving the public an opportunity to uh, see the archaeological record uh, in a really well-preserved condition. The, the uh, uh, Bears area is a classic Canyonlands uh, landscape. Uh, it's uh, deep canyons, uh, narrow mesas, uh, Lots and lots of uh, uh, ledges and overhangs and natural shelters that have preserved, remarkably preserved, really literally thousands of examples of uh, rock art, ranging from uh, paintings to uh, uh, incised or pecked uh, uh, images in the rock, uh, and hundreds of uh, if not thousands of uh, small uh, cliff dwellings and small uh, structures that represent mostly the latter part of the Pueblo occupation. There's there are other sites as well. Most of the sites are actually on the most of the archaeological sites are actually on the mesa top uh, because the, most of the sites were, uh, were were built by people who were farmers, and that's where the soil is. But uh, the fact that there are so many natural shelters in the canyons and under the ledges and in the natural uh, overhangs. That really makes uh, a, a sample, a, a, a portion of the archaeological record really visible and understandable to the, the general public. You know, most, uh, most archaeological sites that archaeologists get excited about often say look like uh, Look like uh, patches of dirt with sagebrush growing on it, <laughs> because the, the they're out in the open and the structures and so forth have simply melted away. Uh, but archaeologists can appreciate them. But uh, the average person uh, understands that there's a site there, but doesn't get a big charge out of it. But walking up and close to a uh, surviving uh, structure that's as it almost. Uh, almost perfectly preserved from a thousand years ago is uh, or 900 years ago is really a, a, a important thing. It's one of the things that attracts people to the area. Lots and lots of hikers and backpackers uh, come to the area to 
enjoy the uh, uh, marvelous scenery, the uh, challenging uh, hiking opportunities, and the opportunity to see um, <coughs> well-preserved rock art and, and archaeological sites. So that's uh, that's one of the appeals of the area, and it's not just Cedar Mesa. There are other parts of the uh, of the quite large uh, Bears Ears area that have the same qualities. And it's uh, because there's been a a general lack of economic development there, mining and uh, and oil and gas development, uh, with some exceptions. Uh, uh, the landscape is really pretty uh, uh, pretty intact, and uh, it allows the uh, the visitors to really get a sense for how people lived at different times in the past in that in that dramatic landscape. It's a it's a very typical national monument choice. In fact, it was that area was uh, on the books to become a national monument during the Theodore Roosevelt administration in the 1930s. But the uh, attempt to uh, get through the depression really uh, sidetracked that. But uh, it's it's come back in uh, in recent times. Uh, uh, presidents have used that the vague <laughs> the vagueness and general opportunities provided by the Antiquities Act to make some very good choices of uh, really awe-inspiring landscapes that have historic and scientific values. So that's kind of my assessment of why the Bears, the, the Greater Bears Ears area is an important area for and a good choice as a national monument. Of course, as you know, uh, the Trump administration greatly reduced the size. It's it's uh, it's not the greater area anymore. It's it's uh, very much uh, several very smaller sites. What does that do? Do you think what what problems does that raise? I think you don't agree with the reduction. What what problems does that raise? Well, I think the concept. If you read the uh, the proclamation, the Pres- uh, President Obama's proclamation, the idea was to preserve a whole landscape. And the uh, Trump administration uh, choice, uh, you know, it uh, it, it uh, preserves uh, smaller areas, about 15 percent of the uh, original Obama monument. But it really uh, moves away from that notion of uh, preserving a landscape in which uh, the uh, how people lived in the past can be visualized against that dramatic uh, canyon country backdrop. <coughs> And, you know, most of the areas that people visit today, you know, there's a there's a tremendous amount of visitation out there, mostly backpacking and hiking to, to visit the sites in the canyons. But most of the sites that people visit, most of the archaeological sites that people visit are not in the in the two units that the uh, that the president that President Trump designated. So I'm always a, I'm a little puzzled as to what the thinking was in in. Uh, in making that move, uh, I really think it was, uh, in good part, uh, promoted by the uh, uh, the political interest in the Utah state and federal delegations, Utah state legislature and the uh, the, the congressional delegation, considerable interest in trying to uh, reduce the amount of federal control over public lands within the state and to ward off what would appear to be uh, additional federal mandates uh, it's a it's a it's a uh, a position that goes you know all the way back to the formation of the antiquities act you know the uh, the reason that 
Theodore Roosevelt uh, designated the uh, the uh, Grand Canyon National Monument in 1908 was uh, because there was a lot of local uh, uh, support for opening that area to mining, which would have changed its character uh, dramatically. And, of course, in Utah, uh, one of the big uh, issues is the Grand Staircase Escalante Monument, which was uh, established by President Clinton uh, in 1996. This is a very large area. It was an area that uh, had been uh, promoted uh, as a uh, potential area to develop large uh, strip mine for coal, uh, large uh, areas to, to, be re- to be devoted to producing coal. Um, and the, uh, the uh, President Clinton's uh, proclamation of that as the Grand Staircase Escalante Monument kind of really sent some shockwaves through the, in my opinion, through the the Utah political system, and there's still a lot of, uh, uh, I think, uh, hard feelings about that. So uh, that's part of the history of it. Personally, I think that uh, it's unlikely that the uh, that those mines, those mines have been under litigation for uh, mine proposal have been under litigation for years, and I think it was not very likely that, given the capital costs of uh, developing major coal mining in such a remote area. That it would ever have been built, but it's still seen as a a, a kind of a, a federal curtailment of a an important economic opportunity for people who live in that part of Utah. And you know that's that's certainly understandable. But I think it's uh, I think the monument is a, has also uh, promoted in uh, in the Grand Staircase Escalante area and Escalante and Boulder, Utah, has promoted a. A, a fair amount of economic activity as well. So, uh, you know, that's that continues to be uh, in the background here for the uh, hostility of the, uh, the Utah political establishment to further expansion of federal mandates and federal controls on the public land. If you just joined us, we're talking with Bill Leip. He is Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at Washington State University, and he has spent uh, much of his more than 50-year career in Utah archaeology. Uh, we're talking about Bears Ears. If we have time, we'll get talking about Glen Canyon and some other topics. And uh, you're welcome to join this conversation if you would like. The email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We'll have more following this break. Why are some people better at taking risks than others? Is it sheer luck, an innate instinct, or simple strategy? It's about being fiercely honest with yourself. The really amazing risk takers, they understand their own weaknesses and they look at where they've got things wrong and they learn from those mistakes. Ideas around risk, that's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Join us for the TED Radio Hour at 10 o'clock today. Wildfires in California are becoming more destructive and dangerous than ever. We have five seasons now in California. Winter, spring, summer, fall, and fire. At the same time, collectively, we can do something about it. Fire is a necessity, not only for the ecosystem, but also for the humans. Join us for this five-part series beginning Friday, 10 a.m. here on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in May.
Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have with us uh, Bill Leip. He is Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at Washington State University. Uh, has been involved uh, in archaeology in Utah for many years. And uh, he was a leader in the development of what we now know as cultural resource management uh, archaeology. We're talking about Bears Ears National Monument, and uh, we'll get into related topics if we have time as we go along. Uh, you can join this conversation by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. So, Professor Leip, um, of course, this is Bears Ears and uh, President Trump's uh, successor, his reversal, is now in the courts. Uh, this is unprecedented, right? A, a succeeding president reversing what the previous president did under the Antiquities Act. Well, there's been a there's been a history of litigation over monuments, and uh, a couple of states have uh, managed to have uh, promoted uh, acts of Congress that restricted the application of the uh, uh, Antiquities Act to monuments in their state, like Wyoming and Alaska. Um, but there's a, the the record is actually relative to other major federal issues uh, is pretty skimpy, and most of the activity in the courts uh, has been uh, many years ago. So, uh, you know, we we it looks as if the the majority of the legal opinions that I've seen, and I'm not a lawyer, but uh, uh, the majority of the opinions indicate that. President Trump probably overstepped the boundaries of uh, even the Antiquities Act. That doesn't provide for a president. It provides for a president to be very to to set aside quite large areas as monuments, but it doesn't provide ways for a succeeding president to uh, uh, to modify those uh, those monuments. So. Uh, uh, you know, I think that's what the courts have to struggle with. Uh, the uh, the plaintiffs, the defendants, which are the which is the administration, has moved to uh, have the uh, the cases dismissed. The cases are being uh, taken by the the, the uh, Bears Tribal Coalition by uh, a number of historic preservation and environmental groups uh, by uh, uh, outdoor retailers, Patagonia, for example. This is a, a whole series of plaintiffs, and uh, the defendants have moved to dismiss their uh, their complaint, uh, and they have then uh, responded with, uh, uh, you know, reasons why there should not be dismissed. So that's pretty much where it stands. People think that there may be some movement. Some of the case may begin to be heard uh, by summer, but uh, there's no guarantee of that. Uh, things move slowly in the in the federal court system, and then, of course, if uh, if the Washington D.C. federal court uh, reaches a decision, uh, it may be appealed uh, either way. So it may be we may be in for a long uh, legal issue that will perhaps uh, clarify the limits of the of the Antiquities Act uh, as far as it refers to national monuments. Uh, I would like to say something about the. Uh, the potential, you know, I talked about the canyons and the ancients having a lot of, uh, of, of uh, uh, oil, gas, and uh, CO2 development. Those are based on existing leases, which were well underway at the time the monument was established. The um, the Bears Ears area, the area west of the uh, of the Comb Ridge that was excluded by the the Trump proclamation. Seems to me to have much lower uh, potential for uh, 
large-scale economic development. The best potential is probably uh, theoretically for uranium, but the uranium market is really uh, hardly uh, breathing these days. There's not much of a market for it, and so um, there, there's not much economic incentive to uh, uh, pursue the existing mining claims for uranium. Oil and gas is also uh, – the geology really changes uh, – west of the uh, of the Comb Ridge and the majority of the area set aside by President Obama and uh, it hasn't been a very promising area for oil and gas so far. The, on the other hand, the area east of the monument, southeastern, the, the eastern part of San Juan County is, uh, is has been a major oil and gas producer over since the 1960s and continues to be an important area. But that's not in the, uh, that's not in the National Monument. That's a that's a different issue that has to do with cultural resource management and the impact of development on uh, on uh, on uh, archaeological sites in particular. So I just wanted to throw that in. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- yeah, oh, certainly, yes. Uh, I want to ask you about, uh, of course, one of the reasons uh, to for public lands, whether it's BLM or National Monument, um, is to protect sites, right? And so from looting, from destruction, uh, once a site's gone, it's gone. Um, is there added protection in a national monument, or can the BLM uh, adequately well, the, protect sites? It's a, it's a, it's a big issue. You know, it's a huge area. The, the, the monument, as proclaimed by, uh, by uh, President Obama, is about the size, actually slightly larger than the state of Delaware, so it's a big area. And uh, there are sites <laughs> almost everywhere in it. Uh, the ones that are most uh, at risk of uh, uh, are the ones that people visit. They sort of, you know, the, uh, as visitation increases, and it is increasing, uh, it's increased dramatically uh, over the years, as uh, not just because of the monument publicity, but because uh, there's so many. Uh, the Internet makes uh, site locations uh uh, easily uh, look easily found and so forth and um, so uh, it's sort of the ordinary wear and tear of people uh, tromping into these sites and not uh, not realizing really how to to visit them more carefully they're not necessarily they're they're uh, intending to do damage but it's a it's an issue and then there's also the issue of, uh, of looting which of course is goes way back to the origin of the Antiquities Act, uh, people digging for artifacts uh, in the dry caves of the uh, of the Bears Ears area have been an important uh, source of uh, looted uh, artifacts for the market uh, for uh, more than a century. So one of the reasons uh, that the Antiquities, the, the, the permit aspect of the Antiquities Act was, was, was included. So those are issues that... Uh, require, uh, even though there are uh, laws that these days that protect uh, sites on the public lands uh, in a sense of, you know, re- uh, prohibiting uh, looting, uh, digging without a permit and so forth, uh, it's a big area. And so the hope in the monument is that, the hope in having a monument is that there will be more resources available for public education in particular uh, and for uh, law enforcement as a as a backup, public education. Uh, most visitors are 
really positive about protecting these sites, uh, but they may not uh, be, 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 they may be unsure about how best to do it when they're visiting them. So that's a big aspect of it. So the idea that by shifting to a monument focus, the BLM and Forest Service, who will continue to manage the area, um, will be able to uh, allocate more resources toward the objects that are being uh, preserved in the monument, the, uh, the sacred sites and, uh, as- and access that the uh, tribes are promoting and the, the archaeological sites themselves. So that's, a, that's the hope. Uh, and in the, I can say in the canyons of the ancients that I'm familiar with from working in Colorado, uh, that has happened to a, a fair extent. Uh, one could always, one all, people always need more money for what, whatever their goals are, but uh, it's resulted in the allocation of more funding for protection. And uh, it's also resulted in management that is directing uh, public visitation to a fewer number of sites. We're, we're not talking uh, about a park service type of management where uh, sites are hardened and uh, you have rangers uh, and guided tours and so forth. We're talking about a much uh, more open kind of uh, management, but it can be done, and uh, there's hope that the monument designation will result in that reallocation of resources toward more public education and ultimately uh, protection um, if law enforcement gets involved. I'd like to uh, broaden the discussion, just archaeology in general. I don't want to, you know, treat the (laughs) five minutes. I can't treat the whole thing. Um, But um, what do you hope that people encounter ancient dwellings or, or, you know, ancient artifacts, uh, what do you hope their reaction is? What, what do you hope they get from that? I hope it, uh, you know, it, it certainly worked this way for me. Uh, when I visit these sites, it causes me to reflect on the, the diverse history of humankind, you know, on the, the way that uh, people, uh, you know, just like myself, uh, only a thousand years ago, Live very different ways of life. Uh, uh, the way the uh, Native American accomplishments uh, took place in uh, areas that today we would find very difficult to even live in. So uh, it just is a, uh, a source of uh, reflection on one's own life and seeing it in through the lens of a very different way, but still uh, very, very. Uh, uh, related uh, way of life in the past. Uh, so it just brings home the notion of uh, cultural diversity and the value that everybody has an interesting and, and valuable history to preserve. Uh, and I think the tribal uh, move to uh, work hard here to uh, work effectively to make uh, their to foreground their own heritage will also contribute to that. It will create a situation where the monument is managed to uh, respect and uh, preserve the living cultural traditions of uh, the tribes who uh, live in or previously lived in Southeast Utah. So those are further general humanistic uh, concerns, but they apply to, uh, you know, the question of why study history? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's why? that's right. <laughs> why yeah. go to museums? Why yeah. uh, why move outside your own uh, sort of narrow uh, way of life? <laughs> and, and you personally still ha- get a sense of wonder, do you? 
You've been working professionally. I'm sorry, what? You, you've been working professionally in this field for many years, but you mentioned that you personally get a sense of wonder and awe when you encounter I do. these. You know, I'm 84. I'm 84 years old. I've been doing archaeology since I was uh, 20, and it's just as interesting now as it ever was. And a, and a part of it is the sort of scientific, uh, you know, puzzle solving that we get involved in. But part of it is just. Uh, Continuing to renew that sense of wonder in making a sort of a tangible connection to uh, a, a different culture by uh, walking up and seeing things they left on the rocks and buildings they left and artifacts that they made and uh, just be- becoming appreciative of the creativity and the efforts of uh, th- those cultures that still exist in the Southwest that still are represented by the tribal coalition. So I think it's, uh, so that, that sense of wonder and sense of uh, really uh, learning from the past is still a major factor in the reason I continue to, to do what I do. You know? uh, we just have uh, two minutes left. We have a question by email. I'll read this to you, Professor. This is John in St. George. He says, to my knowledge, the Antiquities Act does not say how large an area is needed to physically protect the antiquity in question. Therefore, Obama set aside an area the size of Delaware. Trump has cut that dramatically. In your opinion, how large an area is needed to protect the stated antiquity? 100 acres, 100 square miles? How large an area, do you think? Well, if you read the uh, the, the Obama proclamation, it really talks about a landscape preserving a landscape. And I think the monument does a good job of that. It preserves a landscape that's both a natural and a cultural landscape. Every every culture that has occupied that area has really uh, created its own cultural landscape by naming prominent features, by building things that were part of uh, their history. Uh, you know, everybody does that. You know, uh, every society names uh, natural features. And we have, uh, in the U.S., you know, we have uh, battlegrounds and, and major buildings and historic sites that we refer to sort of orienting ourselves, finding our identity. So the, the argument in the Obama proclamation was that this is an opportunity to uh, recognize a, a large Cultural land, a large landscape that's both uh, important scientifically for its geology and archaeology, but important culturally because it uh, it preserves the the sort of big picture that passed uh, by which through which past cultures approached it. They did not confine themselves to uh, small sites. They uh, used the entire landscape and the tribal coalition takes that position. You know, they say, uh, traditionally, we gathered plants all over this area. We hunted many parts of the high country. We would like to have access to that landscape. So I think that's the that's the connection. And it's, it's kind of a fuzzy uh, boundary there. Uh, how large is large? You know, how large is enough? But uh, I think the, uh, the Bears Ears, uh, as was defined by the tribal the tribal coalition pushed for an even larger area, but uh, the Obama proclamation uh, achieved, I think, the goals that, that they're, they're, they're looking for. Well, we're out of time. Uh, we have been talking with Bill Light, Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at Washington State University. We've been talking about Bears Ears and other topics. 
And uh, Professor Leip, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Hey, thank you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Lael Gilbert. I've realized by hanging out with people who don't know how to cook that I really can competently make my way around the kitchen. I'm a home chef, not a pro, but I've realized by watching the way my teenagers slaughter apples with a chef knife and massacre a brownie mix. A brownie mix, how hard could it be? That over the years, I've actually become pretty handy to have around, culinarily speaking. At my house, we often have pre-dinner cooking tutorials in which my blood pressure rises while they spill things on the floor. But sometimes we have fun and produce things we can eat. These sessions always remind me that there is a plethora of skills and knowledge that go into cooking. And a lot of my kids' questions aren't covered by the recipe on the back of the box. So for their sake and yours, I'm doing the next installment of the segment I like to call, Do I Have To?, in which I cover basic cooking questions. For instance, do I have to wash my hands? Yes, you have to wash your hands. We live in such a healthy environment when you compare it to the tuberculosis-ridden days of yesteryear, that it's easy to forget that foodborne illnesses can kill you, or at least make you very uncomfortable for 24 to 48 hours. So wash your hands with warm water and soap before, during, and after preparing food, especially after handling raw meat or uncooked produce like carrots from the garden or dried beans. Wash your hands again if you pet a dog or rub your nose and wash them again if you touch a surface that had raw meat on it, if you touch the garbage, if you use the bathroom, or if you roll around on the kitchen floor for a minute. I'm not a germaphobe, but we tend to take our health for granted and you have to learn healthy habits to stay healthy. It only takes one bout of food poisoning to convince a person that hand washing is worth the trouble. How about this? Do I have to follow the recipe? I'm going to say yes. The first time you produce it, follow the recipe exactly. Recipes reflect scores of failures retried and refined for success. Your best chance for a delicious finished product is scribbled on that little grease-spattered card. As you learn to cook, you'll pick up on the chemistry and artistry of the process. But if you have too many failures at first, you might not stick with it long enough to love it. And you should love it. So follow the recipe to a T the first few times you make it. When you feel more confident in your skills and learn that particular recipe well, you can begin to meander from the instructions and try a few substitutions. I guarantee that you will have failure. But that's the point of experimentation, right? Learning what works and what doesn't work. And there is a lot of joy in creation, which can definitely happen in the kitchen. Just don't experiment in the hours before you've invited 16 people to dinner. Stick to the recipe then. Do I have to preheat the oven? The answer to this one depends on what you are making and on your oven. But a safe answer is yes. Preheat the oven before you put your food into it. If you don't preheat, the food cooks at a lower temperature as the oven heats up for the first 5 to 15 minutes. For forgiving foods like casserole, this may not affect things much. You'll just have to bake longer than the recipe indicates. But if you're baking something that should be done in a short time at a relatively high temperature, your results are going to be very different. For example, take cookies. 
They're baked hot for 10 minutes. This cooks them all the way through and browns the top and bottom. If your oven starts out cold, your cookies will spread flat and be overcooked in the middle and not get golden brown. You'll also run into problems like lack of rising and steam leavened foods. Pastries in particular could be disastrous. If you put food in the oven while it's preheating, it will burn on the surface and remain raw inside. A preheating oven can spike in temperature while it's adjusting to the target heat. You may have set the temperature at 350, but surfaces in a preheating oven can reach 500 or more while the temperatures regulate. For best results, preheat the oven and then wait a minute or two after the beep to slide in your biscuits. And finally, do I have to do the dishes? Well, I'm a pretty good cook, but I'm an excellent mother. So yes, if you like to eat kiddo, you have to wash the dishes. This is Lael Gilbert for Bread and Butter. A statewide service of Utah State University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSUFM Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, Moab, KUST Price, KCEU, and streaming online at upr.org. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state, including music concerts, live theater, classes, workshops, art shows, lectures, festivals, volunteer opportunities, and much, much more. Just check out upr.org and head to our community calendar page. There you'll find our user-friendly submission link and the submission guidelines. 